Gracious and holy God, open to us the mysteries of your holy word. Where we have heard a story many times and missed the details, show us something new. Where we have heard something for the first time, may we be enlightened by your love, your grace, and your connection with us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of my favorite authors is Barbara Brown Taylor, and she tells this story. She was walking on a beach with her husband one day when they came upon a gigantic loggerhead turtle marooned in the sand. They quickly went in search of a park ranger who brought back a jeep and some rope, and soon they had worked together to flip the turtle onto its back. And they looped the ropes around its shell and began to pull it toward the ocean. The turtle struggled as they made their way closer to the water, and when they finally got there, the three of them then worked together again to flip it back over. The turtle lay there motionless in the surf, and as Taylor writes in her own words, every wave brought her life back to her, washing the sand from her eyes and making her shell shine again. When an especially large one broke over her, she lifted her, le- her head and she tried her back legs. The next wave made her light enough to find a foothold and she pushed off back into the water that was her home. Watching her swim slowly away after her nightmare ride through the dunes, I noted that it is sometimes hard to tell whether you are being killed or saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. I noted that it is sometimes hard to tell whether you are being killed or saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. I have to imagine that our friend Joseph felt something of this over the course of his young life, the one who we learned last week was sold into slavery by his own brothers. At first, his fate seems purely tragic, but as he grows up, his life changes. Not only does he rise to a public position of incredible power and influence, but inwardly, he changes. He's no longer the selfish teenager who flaunted his favoritism in front of his brothers. He's started to act like a grown-up. At some point, he must have wondered to himself, what would my life have been like if my brothers had never thrown me into that pit? There's an interesting detail in that story I told you about the turtle. Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us that the turtle got stuck on the beach because after laying her eggs, she mistook a street lamp at the head of the beach for the moon and went the wrong way 
Ironically, the turtle got lost by going toward the light. And this isn't just something that turtles do. People do it too. Many of us are deeply committed to avoiding pain or fear. Figuratively speaking, we avoid the darkness and do so at all costs. To the greatest extent possible, we keep our lives in the light. We dull pain with substance abuse and the distractions of shopping, and we pretend that everything is okay. We keep the lights on in every way we can. But just like the turtle, it is often true that the salvation we need is not found in the light, but it's found in the darkness. And that's what Joseph finds. Only when his brothers throw him into the pit does he really begin to find out who he is and who God made him to be. It's without a doubt one of the greatest plot lines in all of the Bible, complete with dramatic swings between incredible success and abject failure. We met Joseph last week in his teenage years, the spoiled, rotten, favorite son of Jacob. His arrogant dreams and bad behavior toward his brothers results in his first dramatic fall. They throw him into a pit and sell him into slavery. The slave caravan carries him away to Egypt, where he is sold to the pharaoh's official Potiphar. Apparently, the journey to Egypt was long enough for Joseph to have done some serious thinking because he cleans up his act. He works so hard that he is quickly promoted to the management of Potiphar's entire estate. And in addition, he developed enough character to resist the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife. Unfortunately... He now learns the important lesson that good behavior is not always rewarded. For Potiphar's wife frames him, and Joseph loses it all again, and this time he is thrown into the royal dungeon. Joseph now proves his character by keeping up the good work ethic even when he is in prison and he earns the respect of his fellow inmates. And in the next twist of the plot... Two of Pharaoh's officials are thrown into jail, the chief baker and the chief cupbearer. And each of them have a mysterious dream, which Joseph interprets correctly for them. The baker will hang in three days. But in three days, the cupbearer will be returned to Pharaoh's side, where he promises that he will remember Joseph. And then he promptly forgets. And Joseph is left in that dungeon for another two years. Until one day, Joe, uh, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh has a mysterious dream of his own. And when no one is able to provide the interpretation, the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph. And it says that Joseph is brought up from the dungeon, gets a bath and a shave, and arrives in the throne room to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, which are about seven sleek, fat cattle and seven beautiful ears of corn, which are consumed 
by seven starving and emaciated cattle and seven dry and weedy ears of corn. And as we know from today's reading, Joseph correctly foretells that Egypt is about to have seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Joseph's wisdom is rewarded, and Pharaoh sets him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Joseph has arrived. As I've mentioned, a group of our Knox youth have been joining me in studying these texts, and last week we looked at these texts together, and let me tell you a few of the observations that they made. First, they noticed that God who was not mentioned at all in the first parts of the story we talked about last week, joins the story when Joseph arrives in Egypt. As soon as the slave caravan arrives, we're told explicitly that God is with Joseph and he becomes a successful man, the first line of today's reading. Our young people asked a few questions about this. They wondered how God's favoritism works. They noticed that Joseph's rise in Potiphar's house is short-lived. And they also noticed that there are plenty of good people in our own time who do not prosper, but who struggle terribly. And they wondered with me if perhaps that statement about God's favor toward Joseph is supposed to cause us trouble. Our youth also observed that Joseph's depth and character, while not perfect, seemed to be growing. When he begins interpreting dreams as a child, God never enters the discussion. But as Joseph matures, interpreting the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer and finally Pharaoh, he does not take the credit himself, but clearly states that God gives him this power of understanding. Joseph is becoming more humble as he matures. And we're starting to like Joseph a little more. The youth also noted two things about the reading that we heard today. First, they asked questions about the names that Joseph gives to his children. More than a decade after leaving the home of his birth when he is sold into slavery by his brothers... Joseph is now ruling over the whole land of Egypt, and he starts a family there. And he gives his children names with strange meanings. Manasseh, the first is named, for God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the second child he names Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. The two names clearly describe Joseph's journey, and they are clearly way over the top. Joseph is successful, but he's got some serious issues about his family and his brothers back in Canaan. Our youth also talked about 
the idea that emerges in this morning's reading of the plenty and famine in the land. We talked about that and discovered that sometimes you can hear a Bible story over and over again and miss things that are staring you right in the face. This happens to me all the time. According to the text, because of Pharaoh's dream, during the years of plenty, Joseph gathers up all of the food and brings it to the cities and stores it up until it is beyond measure. And at this time, the people of Egypt all have their own land and their own money and their own crops. And there is no indication that Joseph tells anyone other than Pharaoh's house about the dream. And then, when the famine spreads throughout the land and the people are famished and they cry to Pharaoh for bread, Joseph opens the storehouses and sold the food back to the Egyptians. Did you hear that? When they were desperate and starving, Joseph sold to them the food that they themselves had produced. And after this, the famine continues for seven more years. In fact, it takes a whole five chapters of the book of Genesis to describe what happens during those seven years of famine. It doesn't end until chapter 47, and by that time, most of us have stopped reading. So I'm going to read for you what happens at the end of those years of famine. And if you'd like to join me, I'm in chapter 47, beginning at verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished. Because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money from the land of Egypt and from the land of Canaan was spent, all of the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give me your livestock. And I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. That year he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year, and they said to him, We cannot hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the herds of cattle are my lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my lord but our bodies and our lands. Shall we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We with our land will become slaves to Pharaoh. Just give us seed so that we may live and not die, so that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, and all of the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe upon them, and the land became Pharaoh's. 
As for the people, he made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Who is this Joseph? This man who claimed that the Lord was with him, who seemed to be blessed, who many of us learned in Sunday school knew how to save and plan for the future, but who the story tells us if we read to the end that he was responsible for how the people became slaves. Who is this Joseph whose children's names demonstrate this unresolved grief that is piloting his life? Who is this Joseph who seems to begin as a shrewd and wise businessman, but becomes a ruthless slave master of the very people who gave him his wealth? This is one of the most intriguing plot lines in the Bible, is it not? And not just because of Joseph's heroics, which are certainly there, but because he is a complicated person. And people who choose to read closely meet this deeply troubled man. And we're supposed to see something of ourselves in Joseph's struggle because he's not this inaccessible hero who never does something wrong. He looks like us and the mixture of good and bad that moves through our lives. So we can think with him back to the day that those brothers sold him into slavery and remember the story of the turtle. It's sometimes hard to tell whether you're being killed or saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. Like that turtle on the beach, Joseph got his people in deep trouble by chasing the light. And Joseph often underwent his most heroic times of growth when he struggled for his own life in the darkness. God is trying to teach us some things in our hearing of this story. Something about the value of struggle and grief. Something about taking care of people who are in need when you have the opportunity and remembering where where your blessings came from when you begin to succeed. And having endurance in the darkness. Knowing that there too God is with us. God is with Joseph. The story says that much. I think the more interesting question is, when does Joseph know it? Is it in the times of light when Joseph has it easy and life is good for him, when he amasses this great wealth and returns to the fine clothes and robes of his childhood and forgets about the ways that he is oppressing the people? Or does God seem closer when Joseph is in the darkness? When he struggles to find goodness and to build character? And when he's forced to ask what he is really made of? 
Who is this Joseph? My hunch is that this story is supposed to cause us to ask ourselves, Who are we? Who will we become? Do we believe God is with us in times of our own darkness? Can we remember who God is calling us to be even when life is easy and we are walking in the light? Next week we'll talk about how it ends. Amen.